Father in heaven, we do come to you expectantly this morning because we know that you love to speak. We know that you are a God who loves to communicate with his people. You are a God who has made himself known. And Lord, we confess to you that we've found many of these verses challenging these last six weeks as we've seen more of what you are like and more of what we are like more of the inconsistency, more of the disconnect. And so we pray that you would help us this morning, soften our hearts, again, as we deal with complexity, as we deal with the reality of our own brokenness, the fact that we are not finished, you've not finished with us yet. And we pray that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you will have heard of a man called John Stott, Um, He was an Anglican minister. Um, He died in 2011. He uh, was very well known. He's written lots of books. You may have some on your um, shelves at home. Um, I was reading online this week that he is a probable contender for the person that the Lord used most powerfully for Christ in the 20th century. I don't know about that, but it's interesting that people will hold him in such high esteem, such high regard. He once said this. He said, at every step of our Christian development... And in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. He also said, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness and all that, they are mere flea bites in comparison with pride. What do you think about that? Why do you think he says that? Why is pride the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend? I mean, maybe, maybe it was because he had a massively privileged upbringing. He, he was educated in Cambridge, we'll forgive him for that. And aside from that, he had a very, very successful ministry life, mightily used by the Lord. He was rector at All Souls Langham Place in London, very large, very powerful church in many ways. He was, at various times, the president of Scripture Union of Evangelical Alliance of UCCF. He founded the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, LICC. He established the Langham Partnership, a global network to help equip church leaders from all over the world in maturity and in mission. He was heavily involved in a charity called Arosha, engaging in the kind of ecological dimension of our stewardship of our planet that the Lord has entrusted to us. As far as I can count, he wrote 52 books, including some very, very influential books. A, A book for each week of the year. And so maybe him saying, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend, is actually a a window into into the symptoms of his heart. The Lord used him amazingly. Maybe it was a glimpse of his own personal struggles and his demons. I'm not so sure. I actually just wonder whether he simply grasped the nature of what pride is, of our verse for this week. Let me read again just... Five, six, and seven. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And Peter, in the Gospels, of course, was jump in with both feet, Peter, but then frequently needing to remove foot from mouth, Peter. 
It was Peter who sought to shut Jesus down when he began to talk about the kind of king who he would be, the king who would humble himself on a cross and, and suffer. Peter couldn't deal with that. It was Peter who boasted that he would never turn his back on Jesus. He would never deny him. And yet, a couple of chapters later, the heat gets turned up around the bonfire and uh, Peter crumples. It was Peter, mad rush of blood to the head, who sought to take matters into his own hands in Gethsemane with a sword. And it's Peter now, some years on, who seems to have realised that humility is not an optional extra for us as believers. Maybe he had grasped the truths that you read in Philippians 2, famous Christ hymn at the heart of the letter. In, in your relationships with one another, says Paul, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. Took the very nature of a servant. Made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place. But it's that bit in verse 6 that really matters in Philippians 2. It's, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And I, I think I've got that wrong in years gone by. It's for a long time. It's not that even though Jesus was God, he thought he would try on humility for a bit. You know, he would try service on for size for a little season. He decreased himself for a bit. No, it's, dis it's not despite being God, Jesus lowered himself. But it's because he is by his very nature God that he lowers himself and he comes to serve. Service is divine in one sense. As you pour yourself out, there's a real sense in which you are more Christ-like and so more divine, and so even more the person you were made to be as you do so. It is because he is God that he lowers himself, and he serves those whom he loves. And so why is pride so often our default? Why have we even picked this verse for this series? Why do we all struggle with pride? I think it's because we are a people who have walked out on God. We've turned our backs on him. And so our profoundly natural reaction, our response, is to want to be in charge of our own lives. It is our knee-jerk reaction each morning we wake up. Sometimes at Morden Road we say, um, there's a shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. S-I-N. And so there's a turning in on self. God becomes, if anything, a footnote, an afterthought. And if, to put it crudely, our life is about us, if I'm in charge, if the me monster is ruling, then maybe that explains why so often we're so prayerless. Why so often we feel so worried, so anxious, so fearful. So often we think we can't cope. If our default setting is to, to assume that we are the masters of our own destiny, in many ways that default setting is a kind of practical atheism. That's the muscle memory this week. That's the natural response 
That's the knee-jerk reaction to life, is to do things in our own strength. And so Peter says, humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We've got two pegs that we're going to hang our talk from this morning. And my first one is, remember our God is commanding and caring. Underneath me, there we go. And the second one is, and so humble yourself and trust him. But remember our God is commanding and caring. And so humble yourself and trust him. First point, he is commanding. And you get that from this idea of mighty hand. His, his mighty hand, the mighty hand idea here is God delivering his people from Egypt. It is his strong arm, his strong hand that will defeat our enemies, that will bring deliverance, that will bring liberation, that will bring freedom for his people. He can do it. He is strong. He is powerful, which, of course, if you know First Peter at all, you know is a really relevant topic because you'll see why Peter is using this language for these people. They were a scattered church. They were facing opposition. They were under the cosh. They were elect exiles, as he puts it, facing hardship. And yet, rather than anger and rage in response, he says humility, submission, and respect. Again, it's this kind of countercultural revolution. We've seen it in previous weeks. Not the way we would do it. Humility, submission, respect. Uh, sometimes I put it like this. We're, we're, um, it's as if you are climbing a tower block and the lift is out of action. All the lifts are out of action. And so you have to walk round and round and round. You know, seven steps and seven steps and seven steps and seven steps. And you're going all the way up, 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 up. And everyone else is coming down and more and more people are coming down. And they're kind of getting in the way of you and they're tutting and... Uh, what are you doing coming this way? We're, we're all going this way. and It's awkward and it's getting harder and harder to keep trudging up the stairs. We keep going, we keep going, they keep coming down. And Peter is writing to Christians who are feeling the pinch of what it means to follow Jesus. And they're being laughed at for their faith and it's getting awkward and they know what it feels like to be at the blunt end of unkind words and unkind actions. And yet he says, rather than jabbing them on the way past with your elbows, rather than kind of giving them a dig as you walk past, now, this is a letter full of submission and humility and respect. As if wherever we're cut as a stick of rock, you see hum humility, submission, respect. The civil authorities over you, submission, humility, respect. Those in your families and homes and households, humility, submission, respect. Those asking questions about the hope that you have, submission, humility, respect. This countercultural revolution. I take it that doesn't mean that we're simply doormats, taking whatever comes as a sort of weakness and an impotence, and a, but it does mean that a key part of our arsenal in this broken world is humility, submission, respect. To trust the Lord's mighty hand again. To know that it's not about us. His hand is mighty, He is powerful, He is in charge, He is commanding. Which in one sense is fine, isn't it? It's a nice idea to have. It doesn't mean very much because we're cynical and we know there are all kinds of powerful tyrants out there. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you are one. People who will use their power or their position to achieve their aims, who will, at the expense of the feelings of others, ride roughshod over individuals. Where project, projects matter more than people. 
where results matter more than what goes on along the way, where the ends justify the means, apparently. And so saying that God has a mighty hand, that he is commanding, isn't necessarily good news, except for the way that verse 7 ends. Have a look down. He's not just commanding and powerful, he cares for you. He's personal. Imagine that. Do you believe that? The one who rescued his people from Egypt. Indeed, the one who raised his son from the dead. This extraordinary power and authority and might. This commanding God with a strong right hand actually cares for you. Isn't that nuts? Not the idealised version of you, not the you on your best day when you've ticked all the boxes you wanted to tick and you've hit all your targets and you've had a good week and you've done the stuff that you wanted to do and yes, he must be pleased with me, but actually he cares for you now. Or even do you know that he cares for you when life hasn't gone as you expected that it would? Maybe you've just come out of covid Maybe you're stuck in the job that you didn't plan to be in. Maybe you've made a real mess of things. And maybe you know it wasn't meant to be like this, and you didn't want it to be like this, but it is like this. And yet he cares for you. Isn't that nuts? He loves you because he loves you. He smiles over you. He's kind. He's on your side. Because sometimes you get people who are very willing, very kind, very pleasant, but to be honest, they're a bit useless. They're very nice, but they are ineffectual. Not going to name names, so I'm not joking. Sometimes you get people who are very, very capable. They are practically minded. They get the job done, but they don't care that much. They're not actually very nice. And yet he's both. He is willing and able to help. He is commanding and he is caring. And I don't know what that means for you at this point, at this season. In a room like this, full of people like us, in a time like this, that truth about who our God is will kind of map its way out in different ways for different members here. All kinds of different things. Maybe it's, maybe it's something coming up this next month. And it's kind of terrifying, and you sort of freeze a bit when you think about it. You don't know how you'll handle it. And even sort of opening the door on this thing that's coming up, or this uncertainty, or this meeting, or whatever it is, it sort of brings a slight mild panic. You try and stick your head in the sand. You try and avoid thinking about it. And I've just brought it up in the middle of a sermon. And yet you can trust him. You can trust him. He is commanding. He's caring. Maybe you've given up on something because you've not got what you wanted. This is not what you signed up for. Maybe you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and, and you, I'm just not sure he can do it. I'm not sure he can be bothered. So I've stopped. And yet he is commanding, he is caring. And if, if it's not sorted yet, it's either the wrong thing or it's the wrong time. You can trust him. That's the truth for us as individuals in our own personal lives, our walks with Jesus. It's true for us as a church as we trust him for the future, for the months, for the weeks, for the years ahead. 
We're not meant to be able to cope on our own. We're not meant to be in our comfort zone the whole time. He, he kindly pushes us out so that we have to trust in him. So that our pride gets popped. So there's first point. Remember our God is commanding and caring. Second point, and so humble yourself and trust him. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So the disconnect is that our default is towards pride. It's to trust ourselves. I think it's why John Stott says what he says. Because that is our default. In these couple of verses, as the imperative is there for humble ourselves and trust in him, so there are two verses that sort of sit behind these words. Maybe you'll see them in the footnotes. Um, One is from Proverbs 3, verse 34. He, He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. The other is from Psalm 55, verse 22. And King David is writing in the context of opposition. There's all kinds of false friendship that's gone on. Betrayal. People whom he thought was on his side, and yet they turn their backs on him. And so it's not knowing who we can trust anymore. Who can we lean on? And what does David say? He says, my companions attack his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. So, so he's got this opposition, this someone he thought was a friend, a companion, yet he's not. And yet, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. When all others let you down, he's got you. My question, though, in these two verses, as I've wrestled with it this last week, is why does he associate anxiety with humility? Why does he put anxious and humble together? Why are we to both humble ourselves and cast our cares on him and not be anxious? Is he just sort of firing out scattergun imperatives at us? Ah, there's this and this and do this and this and this and all kinds of application. Or are they linked and tied together in some way? I wonder if it's this. Humility shows that we are not in charge. Humility shows that we know that God is in charge. And so if the humble person knows that it's not about them, and so the humble person then can entrust their life to God, because they remember he's in charge, and I'm not. And so he cares for us. And so we can cast our cares on him. The humble person is able to say, Lord, you are in charge and I will trust you in this. Now, I need to put into a brief lay-by here. I think there are different kinds of anxiety. And it's just important for us to understand and to distinguish that. Most of us, I would say all of us, at some point or other, will suffer from sort of low-level anxiety. And maybe that is a pride thing. It's not being in control. It's... Where do we turn in the midst of a trial? Do we, do we look inside and look to ourselves, or do we look to him? And do we trust him? Do we try and just problem solve straight away, or do we pray? For others of us, though, it's worth saying there is a, a generalized anxiety disorder. The volume gets turned right up. All of us have worries and anxiety, and yet some people find it really hard to control them, to deal with them constant feelings of anxiety. 
affecting daily life in all kinds of different ways, far more debilitating. Maybe it's social groups. Maybe it's a kind of trauma and PTSD. Maybe different phobias would come into that as well. But I think we need to say, while they may be related, that is a different thing. And so that is something it would be worth getting help about, to get professional help over. Maybe speak to a GP. Back out of the lay-by. Do you see, though, if I am pumped up full of pride the whole time, if it's all about me, and if I'm in charge, and if I'm the master of my own destiny, then I am pretty sure how things ought to go in my life, and what my plans are, and how things ought to map out. And to be honest, I'm not completely confident that God got round to reading the memo on me and my plans, actually. I'm not sure I can trust that he knows what is best for me or he will act in a way that will bring me life. Or, And I know it's not easy, but instead of casting our anxiety on him and trusting his care for us, we ruminate and we cogitate and we stress and we lie awake. and, Or even we seek to influence and we seek to pull the strings and we do the kind of behind-the-scenes political thing. We hold on to our anxiety and we worry and we try to take care of things ourselves. Because clearly I'm, I know best, I'm, I know all the information. I mean, God's got a kind of hint of what's going on, but clearly I, I have, and I hope it sounds silly, but it's, sometimes it's the way that we live, isn't it? It's our sort of default setting, we slide into it, at least for a particular season, until we suddenly think, oh, what am I doing here in my own strength? Pride says what happens is up to me. And to be honest, that can only end up with me being anxious. It's interesting, again, to read around the topic a bit this last week from different perspectives um, and see a very clear correlation at times between pride and anxiety. The two of them do get married very often in some of the psychological literature. Often individuals who struggle significantly with anxiety very often struggle significantly with pride. The Bible commentators as well say similar things as they reflected on this passage. Here's one. Um, When believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their own lives, in their own strength. It's challenging, isn't it? I'm sure most of us have been anxious this last week at different times. It's challenging because by nature, the muscle memory, our default response is towards pride, is towards self still, in these bodies, in this place. It's challenging because of the, the last 24 months, We live in extraordinary difficult times. Maybe we've realized we're not in control. We haven't got it all tied up as we thought we did. I wonder if anxiety is very high at times due to these things as well. I do wonder. We we live in unprecedented times of control, don't we? Humanity in one sense is so advanced, and yet we're so incredibly anxious that the numbers are rocketing. I mean, with my phone, I can pop onto Amazon Prime and I can buy anything I need and it will be here for tomorrow morning, as long as it's on Prime, obviously. Or I can control the temperature to my front room um, if I wanted to. I can order a pizza in about 45 seconds. I can communicate with friends who are thousands and thousands of miles away. I can research symptoms of my illness. Not that I'm ill, but I could. You can go on and you get information. And, and yet, that can just make me more anxious. Or social media, it can fuel this culture of comparison and status anxiety and fear of missing out and, oh, how can I keep up with them and their beautiful family? 
Or look at all that they've done, aren't they extraordinary? And yet that can just lead to anxiety again. Or they can reduce our sleep because we stupidly scroll in the evening or at night. and So much control, and yet so much anxiety. Morgan Road, if we are naturally anxious, if we are naturally anxious sheep, if we get nervous about where our next field of grass will be, if we get nervous whether there will be water for us to drink, or whether that situation will get sorted soon, or whether those wolves might come chasing us, or what will come of that, know that you have, we have a good shepherd who loves us and who cares for us and who is powerful and he knows best. And has he ever let you down in the past? No. Has he ever not provided and come through with what we've needed? No. Jesus said, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No, but I'll try. And why do you worry about your clothes or about the... See the flowers of the field? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or drink or wear? For everyone runs after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. We say, yeah, 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 yeah fine, but... I've got this thing coming up next week and I'm, I'm stressed about it. Do you see the reason Peter ties together humility and anxiety is for us to remember what, what our role is and what God's role is. What our responsibility is and what his responsibility is. And we have a God who is both caring and who is commanding and whom we can trust. We're almost there. But there is just a future element to the verse. Did you spot it as, as Nate read it for us? Peter says, God cares for you in the present, but there is this future goal of hope in there as well. Do you see that he may lift you up in due time? And you know, it's not at all impossible that that will happen in the here and now. Often the Lord brings relief from hardships relief from stress, relief from opposition or suffering or whatever it is. Some of you will know of that. You will have experienced that. The Lord has answered your prayer as you wanted. But remember the context in 1 Peter is that they were struggling as believers, opposed and persecuted for their faith. And Peter knows that sometimes in due time doesn't necessarily mean in the here and now. And so he begins his letter with a reminder about the resurrection. He says, church, don't, don't forget, this is not all there is. This is not it. Don't just live for now. No, no, follow the one who humbled himself and who was exalted. Follow in his footsteps. And so he begins his letter with, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish or spoil, or fade. It's an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, 
who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. Keep going. Keep going, Christians. This is not it. And at the right time, the Lord will lift you up. Whether that's in the here and now or in the there and then. Remember who he is. Humble yourself before him. Remember who you are. Because he's got you. He's commanding and he's caring. Let's pray. Lord, you know us. You know the things that we're carrying with us this morning. You know the anxieties, you know the the stress, the worry. Indeed, you know our pride. You know how we seek to do things in our own strength so often. How so easily our knee-jerk reaction is to just simply problem-solve rather than first to pray. Help us increasingly to humble ourselves before you. Help us to know the reality of your, your mighty hand, your power, your, your command. And yet also your extraordinary care for us. Lord, forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us so often for taking things into our own hand thinking that our mighty hand is bigger than yours. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.